pilot had crept south, hugging the coastline, until he came in sight of the Sea Island oil loading platform at Ras Tanura, 45 miles to the northeast of Abkaik. Now, with the water beginning to glow pink, he pointed the bow at platform four and slammed the throttle to full. Just inland from Ras Tanura, at Katif Junction, an Egyptian engineer, a Muslim brother who had made the grand tour of militant Islam from Cairo to Tehran, flicked on his flashlight and admired his handiwork. The Semtex was expertly crammed into and around every manifold, every valve, every last pipe junction. It was art, really, lacing it all together in a single charge, a work of beauty, of Allah's great creation. West of Abkaik, in the foothills of the Alarama Mountains, at a small Bedouin encampment, a Saudi in his mid-twenties bent over a 120-millimeter Russian-made mortar for what seemed the hundredth time. A Wahhabi, descended from the religious zealots who brought the House of Saud to power, he had been trained in munitions in Afghanistan by a man who was taught by the Central Intelligence Agency. Below him, at the base of the foothills, sat Pump Station 1, the first stop on the oil pipeline that carried nearly a million barrels of extra-light crude daily from Abkaik across the peninsula to the Red Sea port at Yanbu. A pager vibrated lightly against his chest and went dead. It was time. The Al-Saud were coming down. The oil that fed their whoring and corruption would flow no more. Islam would be purified, the American devils crippled, and their Israeli protectorate cut free to die on its own. The world would have to take notice, and for the simplest of reasons. The global economy was fucked. I've dialed up the details and updated them, but I didn't invent them. They come courtesy of people who studied the Saudi oil industry from the ground up. From the mid-1930s until well into the 1960s, Saudi Arabia was a branch office of America's oil giants, a Republican internationalist's fantasy. The United States remained secure in the knowledge that Saudi oil would always be there for us, under the sand, cheap, and as safe as if it were locked up in Fort Knox. We built Saudi Arabia's oil business and, for our efforts, got full and easy access to its crude. The first OPEC, Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, oil embargo in 1973 took the bloom off that rose, but anxiety turned into full panic in the early 1980s during the Iran-Iraq War, especially when it looked as if Iran might take the war to the Arab side of the Gulf, including Saudi Arabia. With the nightmare of an Islamic prairie fire taking down the world's economy, disaster planners in and out of government began to ask uncomfortable questions. What points of the Saudi oil infrastructure were most vulnerable to terrorist attack, and by what means? What sorts of disruptions to the flow of oil, short-term and long-term, could be expected, and with what economic consequences? Almost to a person, the disaster planners concluded that the Abkaik extra-light crude complex was both the most vulnerable point in the Saudi oil system and its most spectacular target. With a capacity of seven million barrels, Abkaik is the Godzilla of oil processing facilities. Generally, the study groups posited a multi-prong attack on Abkaik, with severe damage to storage tanks and the large spheroids used to reduce pressure on oil during the refining process, and moderate damage to the stabilizing towers, where petroleum is purged of sulfur. 
Restoring the pressure-reducing spheroids would require not much more than the installation of a series of temporary valves, to be replaced eventually by permanent ones. The storage tanks wouldn't be much of a problem either, a few repairs here and there, and you would have full production capacity back in no time at all. The stabilizing towers are another story. Sulfur and oil go hand in hand, the same eons-long processes that make one make the other. But until the sulfur is removed, petroleum is useless. To get from one state to the other, from sour to sweet, petroleum goes through a process known as hydrodesulfurization. At Abkaik, hydrodesulfurization takes place in ten tall cylindrical towers. Inside the towers, hydrogen is introduced into the oil in sufficient quantities to convert sulfur into hydrogen sulfide gas, which then rises to the top of the structure, where it is harvested and rendered into harmless, environmentally safe, and usable sulfur. But hydrogen...